Welcome to the Swaplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are sitting amongst podcast royalty today oh. in that we have someone in the studio who Uh-oh. has two podcasts now. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, wait, that's me. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're right. I do. I have a second podcast now where I talk to friends about smut. Um, we are called Plot is Optional. And yeah, uh, you can check us out on regular podcast places. I'm probably going to have to expand to listening to three podcasts now. Uh-oh. <laughs> What's your third one? Is it How Did This Get Made? I've heard your reference yes. that before. Okay, yes, that, and, and even then I haven't listened to it in quite a while. I like to let there be a big buildup of um, a backlog and then give it all a listen. Speaking of, I actually, uh, within the past like month, I have listened to every single one of our podcasts again. Holy shit. Um, which has given me a lot of insight into the fact that I think that I am dumber now than I was three <laughs> years ago. Oh, I hear yeah. that in my uh, back listens too, and I'm like, returning to a subject i'm like what did i say about that last time i'm like wow i used to have like very like put together ideas and i was very calm in my presentation i feel like i've gone feral yeah at least since the pandemic i was gonna say i think the pandemic ruined all of our brains yeah except that we didn't start doing this until the pandemic like <laughs> you and i Allie. Well, my brain was already ruined but yeah I'm like, man, my mic, my mic sound is so terrible, but that is one intelligent boy back there. Y'all will just have to, like, infer that I was smarter before the pandemic. We'll just have to trust me. I'm looking at my podcatcher of choice right now. I am subscribed to 42 podcasts. God almighty, Brandon. Oh my god. I'm out there doing market research. Yeah, do market (laughs) research on a podcast that reads smut. Our most recent one is about um, Chuck Tingle's book pounded in the butt by the vampire night bus um so it's really good if you're into that which we should all be into chuck tingle forever i thought you were gonna say pounded in the butt by my own butt which i believe is my favorite chuck tingle title it is a really good one but no um part of it is uh my friend who i was talking to about it is really into public transit not that way necessarily but (laughs) um you know it was relevant. Have you had any time to watch movies in between reading Smut for your new show? So I, on Halloween, watched the very delightful movie that is Ghostwatch um, oh, nice. from 1992. So in 1992, the BBC ran Ghostwatch, which is like found footage mockumentary of like an exploration of this haunted house, but it's presented in very like a, almost like an unsolved mysteries way. And they didn't really prepare the public for this at all. They just like aired it on Halloween in 1992. And so, you know, there were old people that at first thought it was real and were very scared. And then there were people who loved it. And then there were people who hated it. And the BBC like got a million phone calls. Because of Ghostwatch. They had their War of the Worlds moment. Yeah, they had their War of the Worlds moment. Um, watching it now, it's just a lot of fun. It's very goofy, like, made-for-TV horror movie. But, like, at the same time, like, surprisingly creepy, I would say. And um, I just feel like we don't have something like that in America that would do that. Like, PBS isn't about to just, like up and do ghost watch you know so i i really appreciate that from the bbc um have either of y'all seen this no i'm i've heard of it but i've never seen it it's been very difficult to get your hands on until the last couple of years yeah because the bbc did not air it like ever again after the initial airing which is it's just like wait a second we screwed up let's not do that again this is the second episode in a row that it's been recommended on the show, though, because our friend Aaron from We Love to Watch was a guest on our Halloween episode, and this was oh. his biggest, most favorite horror discovery of recent yeah, months. Yeah, it's such a good Halloween watch. It's amazing. 
Um, my favorite podcast that I actually listened to, Criminal, did a whole episode all about like the world War of the Worldsness. So if y'all are into weird true crime slash oddity things, recommend that episode. But uh, yeah, it's very like Halloween. It's very like it's creepy, goofy, but also you know it's legitimately it's got some legitimate scares. Yeah, definitely recommend it. Uh, maybe next year. Next year for Halloween, we should do it. I say. I vote. I vote we gotta go for a ghost watch. And I vote that we continue to plug every other podcast in the world besides the Swampflex podcast for the rest of the episode. I also, I also vote that. <laughs> you said that you are subscribed to 42, and I couldn't imagine there were that many in the whole world. Yeah, I was gonna say, there's that many podcasts? I want to say, like, most of them are movie reviews, too. Like, oh, wow. I, there's a couple that are like comedy podcasts. There's one called The Rialto Report that's like interviewing porn stars, which I guess is kind of movie reviews in a roundabout way. <laughs> but most of them are like versions of this show. It's like people who think they're Siskel and Ebert, and most of them get paid for what they do. Wow. Which is unlike this show Imagine where we, we spend money on our hobby. Yeah. There are people who get paid to do this. There are people who make money from this. I am not one of them. <laughs> Nor maybe no, one day definitely not. I'll be one of them. For my Can't smut. relate. If I can make money off of reading smut, I will be happy in my life. That's the goal. But yeah, so that is what I watched. That was my Halloween viewing. Um, Boomer, did you watch anything cool on Halloween? Well, uh, I was actually out of town on Halloween weekend. And on Halloween night, I actually did go out. I was the only one in my group who wore a costume since they had all worn their costume Saturday night. I was like, oh, okay. I I wore my emergency medical hollow program, EMH doctor from Voyager. Um, And then, so the reason I was out of town, I was actually on a work trip. uh, And we did have a costume element of that. And in order to pack as little as possible, I called the hotel in advance and asked if they had bathrobes. And they said that they did by request. And I was like, well, then I hereby request. So uh, I, I went in just like basketball shorts, white shirt, uh, bathrobe and slippers as Tony Soprano uh, going down to get his mail. <laughs> um, because that was simple and it didn't require me to pack more than I was already going to. One thing that was in play during that trip, though, is first of all, I don't, I, I'm, I know I'm going to sound like an actual boomer at this point. I do not understand how to work a hotel television anymore. They are so complicated and so ridiculous. Like, you can't just go to a guide. And, like, I can't do that with my TV either, but I know how my TV works. In this one, you know, you turn it on and Mario Lopez is trying to convince you to rent the new Seth Rogen Ninja Turtles movie before you can do anything else. Um, but I did eventually discover that Paramount has a channel now, uh, and they were just playing The Addams Family and Addams Family Values back-to-back in a loop all weekend long. So there were many times that I was in and out of consciousness in that hotel room, absorbing passively both of those movies, both of which I've seen before and both of which I love. And luckily, I was able to be present during several of the iconic scenes, the most important sequences, the ones that you have to see. Uh, Obviously, Wednesday destroying the play at summer camp. Um, Joan Cusack's Malibu Barbie uh, slideshow. All of the greats, even though those are both from Values, which I happened to see the scene where um, Fester takes, or uh, Gomez takes, fake uncle fester who turns out to be real uncle fester spoiler alert uh down to like their vault somehow i managed to catch that one scene from the original adams family three times that's just how the timing lined up so i don't know if there's meaning in that but i don't see it i think the real cosmic happenstance here is that that's perfect like seasonal transition programming from halloween to thanksgiving there's those two movies back to back you did a good job because the the play at the summer camp, even though it's a summer camp, is about Thanksgiving. I uh, also, you know, we haven't said anything about this yet, but because of what is happening in Palestine and the genocide that is happening there, I did consider going back and finishing the late Great Planet Mirth run of at least the four A Thief in the Night films. Uh, I watched the first three, 
And then I put off watching the fourth one until it reached a point where I was like, I know that I'm not going to understand what is happening in those movies. Because the thing about those A Thief in the Night Rapture movies is that the theology that they are influenced by, it's not exactly the same as the premillennialist dispensationalist rapture thinking that was more common in the 90s. Uh, so you'll have a scene where, uh, let's say in the second movie, you know, people are starting to have to get the mark of the beast in order to get food. In the third one, then the, they then have like a really complicated escape to try and get food from a grocery store using, you know, um, trying to overload the computer system. But you as the viewer, like the first one is a very good tool for evangelizing. It's very scary. Um, it's the most like a movie. These are always the ones that do have big action sequences in them because the people making them, you know, had worked in Hollywood and like real movies before they split off to make these like uh, propaganda films. But you as the viewer, as they go on, are supposed to have more of an understanding of what happened in between the narratives you actually see on film based on what you were being taught in your church about the rapture. And that is not necessarily the same thing that I grew up with in the 90s. So there are bigger gaps as these movies go along in what you could possibly understand to be happening. But I was tempted to go back and get back on board with these because it is an important thing to know about the way that um, the right wing in America is very pro-Israel is in many ways tied to evangelicism in the sense that it's a it's an important part of premillennialist dispensationalist theology. It requires that the nation state of Israel exist. They're like cheering on a third world war, right? Because it's supposed to bring yes. on the apocalypse and then the return of Jesus. Right. Yeah, they literally are racing to the end. Yeah, it's, you know, they want to bring about the end of the world as we know it in order to bring about, you know, this supposed Christian kingdom on earth, which, you know, will, will never happen. Um, but they want to rush toward that because they believe that uh, God's divine protection over Israel will be what prevents the like third world war from happening and therefore allow for the rapture to occur. You know, th there's some steps that are in different orders to, based on which premillennialist dispensational theology you were raised in or what you were raised to believe or what your weird numerology has told you at this point in your life. But it is something that's very pressing and it's something that's important to understand about the way that the U.S. conducts its business with Israel and the way that evangelicals have had a like, vice grip on our government since the 80s. Um, but unfortunately I could not watch this movie. It was, it was even, even to use it as a tool to get into writing more about what's happening. Um, as I have done with previous instances in this, you know, late great planet mirth series, this fourth one, the prodigal planet is borderline unwatchable. I might just have to skip it and move on. And finally, I guess my sort of last spooky season, uh, watch was the movie cobweb which, Brandon, you saw as well, correct? Yeah, I watched it in the lead-up to Halloween, which I had heard it was something worth watching in that season because, you know, it's like one of the like more traditional but still like inventive horror movies that came out this year. Right. And what I assumed when people were saying that, you know, they should have saved it for theaters for Halloween was like, you know, it's like a surprising barbarian style twisty horror movie that might might have done better in October than like competing with Barbenheimer. What I didn't realize right. what people meant when they were saying they should have saved it for Halloween was like it's decorated with like hundreds of jack-o'-lanterns and takes place on Halloween night. Yeah, the it takes place entirely in the week leading up to Halloween. Like the film starts with a week before Halloween. What is interesting about Cobweb is that um it's sort of in the genre of things that I like in that uh, this is one of those movies that like bad Ronald um, features a boy in the walls or a person in the walls, except that's not the twist. That's, that's what the premise is. I would say it falls more in the style of twist that I like where the logical explanation actually raises way more questions and makes the narrative more confusing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love how, like, once you get an answer to what's actually going on here, you're just like, wait, what? 
Yeah. It's more of a head scratching, like M. Night Shyamalan style twist where like he, he makes things weirder by revealing what's going on. I appreciated that. Not that the ending of the movie is the best part. The lead up to that reveal is where all the tension is. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, Alia, if you, in case you haven't heard about this one, this is a movie about a boy who, in the week leading up to Halloween, he begins to suspect sort of um, parents' style, that there's more going on with his parents than meets the eye. And they're played by uh, Lizzie Kaplan, um, whom we all know from True Blood, of course. I'm just kidding, from Mean Girls. <laughs> and Anthony Starr from uh, The Boys. They're his parents, and they are genuinely very creepy. But they're creepy, at least initially, in a way where you're like, oh, you've known parents like this. These are the kind of parents that like homeschool their kids, that intensely monitor everything their children do. They're over-invested in their children's lives, um, but in a way that's more about control than it is about like delighting and seeing what that little human is becoming as it becomes a fully formed person on its own. And he gets a new teacher right around the same time that he starts to hear someone speaking to him from behind the wall of his bedroom. And yeah, I kind of don't want to really give away much more than that. Although we did already say that it's somebody in the walls. Or is it? I mean, that's teased pretty early on, right? Like, there's someone whispering to him from inside the walls. There are points in the movie where you're really guessing, like, what is going to happen here? What is happening here? Where I thought, okay, maybe there is like a demon that's trapped in the house and the parents have like kept it locked away. And the boy is going to release this like demon rather than what it says it is, which is, you know, again, I won't say, but I will stand up for this movie a little bit on, on how it handles that mystery too. Cause I feel like a lot of people's frustration with it is like, once the cat's out of the bag, it kind of loses a lot of its mystique, which is true. But I watched this the same week that I watched um, No One Will Save You, the alien invasion one with Caitlin Deaver in it. And I liked this movie a lot more than that one because of the narrative structure of that mystery. And like in the alien movie, there is a mystery of like what's going on here. What's the what's her relationship with the rest of the town? Why does everyone glare at right. her like that? Why does she live in this fake little dollhouse life that she like overly curates? Like what's her deal? And that is revealed in the third act, like this, like kind of revelatory, like, Oh, this is what actually happened. This is why the town is like this moment. And I just think that's so dumb and so like cheap to hide information from the audience like that. Instead of just like, letting us know what the characters know. Like the, the fact that all that stuff is obscured to the last minute. It's like, well, if I had known that information up front, there wouldn't be much of a movie here. Whereas in cobweb, the parents, I guess, know what the deal is, but no one else does. And it's very weird to everyone else. And you're like going through the mystery of what's actually going on in that house with their young son. And the son discovers the information with the audience. So you're kind of like going through it with him. So it's not like the information's obscured just as a narrative contrivance. It's obscured because you're like in his mind and like experiencing the world with him in that way. And it makes it way scarier and makes the reveal way weirder. I think. I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, I want to say in, in the defense of no one will save you. I, I understand what you're saying that it is sort of contrived to keep that information from the audience. But to me, the way that that functions as a latter film reveal is part of the way that that film is intentionally set up. Because the way that the people in the town treat her is not important to the way that she is handling the situation that she's in. That's just like the trauma that, you know, and, and when we talked about Smile last year, I made fun of how every movie is like, oh, trauma is the monster now. And, you know... No One Will Save You is a pretty clear example of that kind of plot, although it doesn't name itself that way. You know, No One Will Save You, I think that's intentional because it doesn't have anything to do with how she's defending herself or or why she's experiencing this home invasion. Oh, it's intentional. I just hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that narrative structure. Like, especially those like movies that came out in the 90s and 2000s where like everyone is connected and there's like 40 characters and you're like, well, how does this person know that person? And like, the only thing for the story to do is hide that information from you until the last moment. And you're like, 
Oh, that's why that guy was acting weird earlier. It's like, if I had known that up front along with the characters, then maybe we could have dug into their weird relationship dynamic in an interesting way. But instead, it's like a last-second gotcha, and I feel like you're just wasting my time for no reason. I, I really get frustrated with that structure. Yeah, I mean, the movies that you're describing in the 90s that do that, I'm with you 100%. It just didn't it didn't upset me or didn't annoy me the way that it did for you in this particular example. And I will say Cobweb, again, the way that the tension builds in this movie over time where, you know, the constant impending sense of threat, the constant impending sense of danger, it's really palpable and it's really powerful. And I, you know, I agree with the reviews that you were citing that say it loses steam a little bit in the third act after the reveal, but not completely it still carries it through to the end it just doesn't it kind of chug chug chugs into the station a little slowly rather than you know coming in hot it's such a weird answer to the question that i'm willing to forgive you know basically not spending more time with lizzie kaplan as i think is what people are saying because she gives such a strange performance that once it's gone the movie kind of loses a lot of its tension yeah and her role fascinates me uh and again this actually kind of goes back to the same thing about like being raised in the vulture's nest of evangelicism which is that i knew so many moms like her where they are somewhat sympathetic but they're also still completely under the thumb of their completely insane husband and yet they're also capable of levels of cruelty too because they're trapped in the same like prison of this man's anger yeah i mean part of the reason that I'm bringing up those two movies together. Not only like did I think it was like illustrative of like how to effectively keep the audience in the dark in a way that like feels upfront and honest. <laughs> um, I, I think there's like a parallel in like how she and Caitlin Deaver's character in the alien one are like living this like 1950s housewife, like leave it to beaver fantasy that just feels out of step with modern oh, life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it even feels more honest and authentic in cobweb because there are a lot of people that have that like return to pre-feminism femininity in the exact way that she's dressing and acting um and it, yeah. and it is like a conservative movement to like basically yeah, dial the clock back, back to the, the 1950s trad wife times exactly she reminded me in this one a lot of nicole kidman and the others the way that she's like going from room to room and like panicking with these keys yeah, I felt like she was channeling that a little bit, and I really appreciated that. But uh, yeah, there's something in the walls. Cobweb. Brandon, <laughs> what else have you been watching? I also went on a trip out of town recently. I went to Minneapolis for a few days. It's not an exciting trip to report about. Like, I basically went to like movie theaters and record stores and bookshops and things that were fun for me to do, but like, it's not like a sexy vacation to like report back on. (laughs) You went to random places. Yeah. I mean, it's cold up there. So like, I assumed they would have like indoor kid activities to do. And I found plenty of them. Um, One thing I did do though, is I took a very long public transit ride out to the suburbs to meet a friend. It, It was actually Aaron from We Love to Watch. I have to plug another podcast every yeah, you do. two minutes or this episode falls apart. Um, we went to Dismember the Alamo. Uh, it was my first time at an Alamo Draft House, and it's their annual horror marathon where they play four to five horror movies in a row and don't announce what the lineup is till you're there. How did you like it? I don't really love the the model of like an Alamo Draft House. I remember Canal Place. I'm saying I remember Canal Place did that uh, for a while while I was working there in the kitchen. And I thought it was like the worst era of that theater. Like the whole concept of like paying for like a $20 salad while you're watching like Oscar bait when you could just wait 90 minutes and go to like a better restaurant like right after was just very strange to me because it's located like at the edge of the French Quarter. But like going out to the suburbs to an Alamo made like way more sense to me. Like there was nothing better to do within like walking distance in this like strip mall area. And then also the context of like watching a horror movie marathon where people will bring you in my case, coffee and then greasy pizza and then alcohol. 
that was the only way I was going to survive that eight to nine hours that I spent sitting in the same chair, you know? Like, I needed little teenage serfs to bring me treats and trinkets uh, to get through the experience. So I, I ended up having a really great time, and the programming was very good. They played Messiah of Evil, which is a movie I love. And then they played The Changeling, which is a movie I think is fine. I mean, it's not something I particularly care about. That was one of the VHS tapes I had the longest. That was one of my first VHS tapes I ever collected was The Changeling. That seems like a very you movie. It is. It was hard. <laughs> it was hard to like return to that right after watching George C. Scott in The Exorcist 3. And it's like, I know he can do better yeah. work. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but then... They were going to play two other movies that I've already covered on the website before, uh, Blood and Black Lace and Ringu. But instead, they had like issues with the DCPs, like they had issues with the, the files. And they ended up playing, instead, two movies I had never seen before, um, Night of the Demons from 1988 and The Burning from 1981. And the mood shift from them playing like two artsier slower cerebral style horrors to like much trashier over the top teens getting killed for getting high and having sex like slashers was really invigorating like it, it became more of like a horror nerd party vibe in there instead of what it was turning into which was like a sleepover <laughs> where if they had played blood and black lace a movie i really love i probably would have been nodding off every few minutes and like kind of coming to to like another jollo kill uh, once the soundtrack picked up, but I ended up having a really good time. It was a great, it felt like putting in a full shift at the movie factory. You know, like I punched in, I watched my eight hours. Uh, I had my lunch break. <laughs> I really enjoyed night of the demons a lot. Uh, that one is also set on Halloween. It's like a few scumbag teens in this haunted house that on Halloween only has these like demons that get resurrected and like inhabit their different bodies. Um, a lot of the characters are these like really hateable Reaganite jocks. And then their two foils are this sort of like goth teen, um, who wears like a bunch of black lace and like white makeup. And then also Linnea Quigley, who is playing this sort of like oversexed bimbo character. Oh, yeah. Who's very fun. And especially once she be becomes possessed by demons and is like ripping the heads off of these jocks is like a hoot and a holler. And then the burning was like a Friday the 13th style, like cabin in the woods slasher. Uh, that was the brainchild of Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> so when his like name popped up on the screen, it was like a jump scare. And then the movie ended <laughs> up being a lot about sexual assault. Like all the boys at this co-ed summer camp, that's interesting. you know, keep pressuring the girls for sex. And that's when they keep getting killed by this disfigured burn victim who chops heads off with gardening shears. I know we talked last time about how we don't particularly care for Friday the 13th. Um, the burning is actually a really good variation on that milieu. And like, it just feels like oh, a better okay. version of that movie. Uh, it's also got a young Jason Alexander with hair in it. Uh, so that's worth seeing. That sounds cursed. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess what I was scouting was like, if the Alamo Drafthouse ever did come to New Orleans, what would I want out of it? Because I, I was not satisfied with like the fake version of it at Canal Place. And I think if it was in the suburbs competing with the AMC instead of competing with like the Broad and the Britannia, I think it'd have a great fit out there. And I also think that if I had access to a car and it was out in the suburbs, I would go to these like horror marathons and I would go to like their sort of repertory genre programming because I, I know that they have like you've mentioned weird wednesday a lot um yeah weird wednesday, terror tuesday i live where the alamo is from right <laughs> uh, are, are we past our don't dox me phase i don't need to be cool well, anymore having gone back like i said before and listened to every episode our operational security early on was real bad. Anybody would just go back to like the third or fourth episode. I almost gave my address in that one. So at this <laughs> oh point, God. there's no point in, in trying to hide the fact that I am 36. I live in Austin and I am fearless. Uh, hear me roar. Um, wow. Whoa. I will say also, in addition to those, I really enjoy anytime that they have special summer programming, like puzzle of a downfall child, unmarried woman, uh, so, uh, several of the movies that we have discussed either on the podcast or as movies of the month or that I've just done coverage on 
those were all from a woman on the verge, like special programming block. You know, there was a, a ripoffs of Vertigo programming block that I went to some years back before COVID, where that was how I saw Body Double and various other things like that. So that is what they are for to me. Like, I understand what you're saying about the salad, because I also wouldn't pay $20 for a salad in the movie theater. But, you know, sometimes you do want some wings. Um, <laughs> you're going to be there for a while. I ate nothing but junk food. I had like fried cheese and pizza. <laughs> I really enjoy their fried pickles. Oh, I also had the pickles. <laughs> Those were good. I'm going to get on my high horse for a minute and say that I'm very disappointed that ever since we came back from quarantine, uh, the Alamo Draft House has not brought back their hot dogs. I'm a hot dog at the movie theater kind of man. Nice. When I was a kid, I never got that. My mom said it was disgusting, and she was probably right. And my whole life, all I ever wanted, that was like, when I grow up, I'm going to go to the movies whenever I want. I'm going to get a hot dog when I do. And, you know, my dreams have mostly come true. So with the Alamo Draft House no longer having the chili cheese dog or any of the other dogs they used to have, I find it very disappointing. Honestly, I usually get like a glass of wine if I'm at the Broad or the Britannia, because I feel like... I need them to stay in business and they make most of their oh, money yeah. off concessions. But I can't imagine eating a full meal if you're just going to watch one movie. It made total sense in the marathon context, but I'm at the movies so often that if I ate a hot dog every time I went, I literally would die. Right. And and that's that's an important distinction as well. <laughs> Everything she did about this film was groundbreaking. And she had the courage and the tenacity to make this movie. That's what I have to say about this woman next to me. And it was an absolute honor to be a part of it. Well, I'm, I'm interested really in Patricia's. I mean, she's the one who had all the courage. You know, nobody, oh. n- nobody, people were frightened to be in this movie. I mean, actors. And not only that, agents. The agents told the actors as Patricia's manager told her, it's going to ruin your career. It's going to ruin your life. You must not do that. That's, yeah, that's, that's we forget, you know, mm. how um, controversial this story was at that time, you know? And um, I mean, it's true. Am I, am I right about no, that? No, you're absolutely right. My, my manager's wife said to me, it was my first film. Um, and she said to me, I hope you have a really good time because it's be the last film you'll ever make. Yeah. That's true. I mean, it was a very different time. It was a very different time. This week, I had everybody watch the uh, 1985 movie Desert Hearts. Um, This movie is about a very square, strict, like kind of uptight seeming college professor goes all the way to Nevada in 1959 to get her residency to get a divorce from her husband because getting a divorce at that point in time was um difficult uh she lives on a ranch and there is at the ranch the matriarch who is she's a little eccentric and her son who is a flirty buff ranch hand who uh also fairly respectful and also on the ranch is her sort of stepdaughter who is a very uh free-spirited lesbian um the lesbian and the uh college professor i guess i should say Kay and vivian (laughs) uh Kay is the lesbian here fall in love um slowly There's a lot of longing glances across rooms, a lot of flirting, and eventually, you know, they have their affair, and at the end, the professor has to go back to New York, but with the hint that maybe they'll try for a long-distance thing, but at the same time, you know, her life has changed, she's been liberated, She's discovered something new about herself and uh, has found happiness at last, even though she came out of this really 
stilted holes marriage. The movie doesn't end with finality, though. Like, it's not yeah, it actually closing this chapter because yeah, exactly. they're supposed to part ways, yeah. but they can't stand to do it. And it's like, well, what yeah. if you stay with me for another 40 minutes? Yeah. Ride with me to the next station. It's a very sweet moment because it's like, you know, I want to squeeze as much out of this experience as I can. But it's also one of those things where it doesn't actually leave you knowing where the relationship might lead. They know exactly. that they're supposed to stop, but it just keeps, yeah. they keep coming up with excuses to prolong it a little bit more. And for all we know, that momentum could keep on going on forever. Exactly. They could just end up riding all the way to New York. Yeah, I loved this movie. Um, I don't know how how y'all felt about it. How what's the what's the temperature here? Uh yeah, this movie is beautiful. I liked it a lot as well. It it reminded me a lot of David Lean's Summertime, which was another alley oh, pick on which this I, show. I was gonna say, which I also made us watch. Uh just in the I narrative setup yeah. where, you know, in that movie, is it Catherine Hepburn? Um mm-hmm. is on vacation in Venice and she's lived this very like closed like emotionally closed off life where she's very like guarded in herself and she wants to have a vulnerable open-hearted experience on this vacation and it's very difficult for her and every small interaction she has with a stranger feels like the whole weight of the world is like riding on this one interaction and she can't actually open up in a very like vulnerable way because it, it just feels like her whole life would fall apart if she did that and there's really sad tension in how much of like a nervous wreck she is and it's really satisfying when she does like have an out of character experience mm-hmm. and that setup i feel like carries over to this movie very well the difference is that david lean is working on this like soaring melodrama level and like really expensive technicolor opulence like the widescreen vistas of venice are like very beautiful and romantic Whereas Desert Hearts, you know, was made in the 80s without a distributor on basically like um, a self-raised budget. Yeah. And I think for what they were working with, like, it's pretty incredible. The idea of like staging a period piece on this budget level yes, is really daunting. what I was thinking. I was like, oh, my God. Like, I didn't know this was a period piece at first. And so when I saw that, like, title card that said 1959, I was like, oh, my God, like. I know this is an independently made movie, but yeah, it looks it looks great. And I think part of it is probably, you know, that the American Southwest hadn't changed that much between. Right. Well, they're pretty smart about it. Like, yeah, when they're driving around in the car and the ranch owner is like pointing to different buildings, the camera doesn't cut to show those buildings. Like, yeah, we stay in the car with them, but. There are locations that have been preserved. They shot the casino scenes in a casino that like had actually operated in the 50s and ha- had not been updated much since then. Uh, the sort of like divorce ranch location m- probably had not changed that much. Like, they were, I'm sure there's plenty of set dressing. I, I, I noticed in the train station they had a lot, a lot of like hand painted signs they hung on the wall where there might be more up to date 80s posters. Also, the climate out there, I, I know from living in New Orleans, like everything rusts here. But like if you want a classic car, you usually buy it from the American West because the climate's yeah. dry enough that the cars last. And there's a lot of beautiful vehicles in the movie. So, yeah, I, I think maybe there is like a cliche here a little bit where it's like a lesbian period drama about yearning. But it's not in the like buttoned up uh, Victorian sense. It's more in like a 1950s, like women experiencing freedom in the American West. The fact that they pulled that off on this tiny budget and there's a lot of like slow simmering, quiet tension Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the David Lean, like soaring melodrama. I I think it's an interesting variation on that familiar plot template. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like this one is kind of in conversation with fried green tomatoes as well in that way, where it's sort of like this period piece of not that long ago, but long enough ago that it's significant about like the yearning of these two women for one another. Are they both based off like lesbian novels from around the same time as well? So the novel that uh, Desert Hearts is based on came out in the early 60s. And I want to say Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe probably came out in the late 
70s or early 80s. Okay. That has that contemporary element, remember, with Kathy Bates. Oh, yeah, that's right. Unquote, present in the 80s because she has, and that frame device is in the novel as well. And I know the, this book was very controversial. I might, I might have been confusing Friday Green Tomatoes with Ruby Fruit Jungle when I said that. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, there, oh, there's yeah, like a literary yeah. tradition there where, where there were a lot of novels about this kind of like yearning and, you know, quote unquote, yearning unnatural and the longing, love. The longing yeah. and the yearning. <laughs> yeah. I was really blown away by um, the performance of Mrs. Roper in this movie as the ranch owner. She really brought a lot of pathos to this role for what is a supporting role. Like she is not the main character. Uh, This movie, this narrative is about these two women who find each other, but her way of looking at the world was really interesting to me, especially because like you were saying before, she did not, she took Kay in. What we understand about the relationship is that she was in a, she was the mistress of this man um, who had a daughter with his wife and then his wife ran off. So she took in this man and then had her own son who was, um, who works there at the ranch. And she just sort of took Kay in, even though she has like her son is Kay's like half sister, but she had no obligation to do so. And yeah. the fact that she loves her so much is like a really important part of her difficulty. And at least initially in accepting Kay's quote unquote unnatural uh, activities and desires. But I also think that her own, the fact that her own relationship was um, at the time illegal, you know, yeah. uh, her that she was with this man who was an adulterer also allows her to be able to see that like love doesn't exist just within the confines of like the law. And what, you know, uh, the custom of the time considered the natural order of things. And she's also running the divorce ranch yeah. specifically to help women separate from their husbands, which at the time right. would have been a big deal, too. Yeah. I do like that their relationship is not easy or straightforward. She's not like this angel. But the movie also yeah. doesn't condemn her for her homophobia either. And about the homophobia, which is interesting, is like everybody knows it's yeah, everybody seems secret. to be pretty okay with it. Well, we hear a lot about talk. It's like everyone yeah. will talk if they see you do this or do that. And I think that the acceptable path that Kay is supposed to take is that no one in town is going to take the lesbianism that seriously if it's like a side project. Like the thing that she's supposed to do is marry her manager as a beard and have dutiful yeah. like wife sex with him every now and then. Daryl. Yeah, oh God, <laughs> what a drip. But she's unwilling to play that game. Uh, she has a coworker named Silver. Speaking of like side characters who were like, oh my God, very so essential good. to the text. Love her so much. Silver is amazing. But she's this like brassy country singer who also works at the casino with Kay. And from what I could tell from their body language, they have a very intimate relationship and very likely have been sexual partners as well. But yeah. Silver is at least by and can marry a man and then get away with living a free life. Kay doesn't have that luxury. Joe you know? hit her husband that she's marrying. He seems amazing as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Joe, I love you. <laughs> Joe's uh, moment where he finds his wife uh, bathing with her coworker slash probably sexual partner. And he sits down and his first thought is sometimes I wish I was a beautiful woman. He just sort of muses <laughs> on that thought for a minute. It's a great moment. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, the first time that I heard about this movie, there was a friend of mine and we happened, uh, she happened to be on my bus one day. Uh, we didn't normally catch the same bus. I didn't even realize she ever rode the number five, but she was telling me, she was like, oh, I actually just watched this really great lesbian movie called Desert Hearts this weekend. And she expounded on it. And one of the things that she said was really exciting to her as a queer woman was that it was not shot for the male gaze, like very clearly not. You have this woman who is, you know, behind the uh, camera who is directing this and helming this. And even the sex scenes are not eroticized the way that uh, quote unquote lesbian sex scenes were in movies that were aimed at a presumably male audience. I think the sex scene is kind of bulletproof in the like sex scene discourse that's going on right now where like people complain about 
it being gratuitous for no reason and just being about flesh. And mm-hmm. like this scene actually does advance the plot, quote unquote, in a yeah. way that people said that sex scenes don't. And it like deepens the characters mm-hmm. and the way they're relating to each other in bed adds so much more to their story as individuals and as a couple. Uh, it's a real, really great moment. The movie wouldn't be the same without it. It does fall into the, another lesbian cliche, though, which is that uh, their sex lasts for like 17 hours. <laughs> they, they can't have a quickie. Like it, it just devolves into them not being able to walk out of that hotel room for like, it seems like days. I mean, I don't know if that's a cliche necessarily. Um, after having taken a uh, relationship psychology class, that's a statistic. Well, cliches come from somewhere. I loved their kiss in the rain. Yes. Beautiful that moment. That scene was very lovely. Even though they're like fallout moment where I know you get annoyed sometimes when characters have like a very quick argument just so there's like a third act fussiness yeah. to take care mm-hmm. of. It feels like a very real argument where like mm-hmm. Kay no, gets agree, frustrated yeah. that, you know, Vivian's just visiting her lifestyle for a minute and is going to leave and go back to her normal life as a professor. And Kay's like, well, I have to stay behind and like mend my broken heart after you, you know, are done playing tourist. It feels real. It, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like yeah. it's a complete plot contrivance. Yeah, and you know, th- they mentioned that um, Kay is like ten years younger than Vivian, who's only thirty-five, but acts like she's middle-aged in yes. comparison. She, you know, although I guess in that time period, thirty-five might have yeah. been the average midpoint of your life. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, I think at that point in time, like. You know, if you weren't married by like 21, what are you even doing with your life? You know? Yeah. And so, she was, though, but now she's getting yeah. divorced. And I guess that's why everyone's pressuring Kay to like kind of put this sexual perversion behind her and like get normal. Uh, right. you know, yeah. Very Daryl is that, you know, it's time for her to put childish things away and like settle down. And uh, her defiance that gets everyone talking is that she refuses to play the game. Mm-hmm. I don't know if y'all watched on Criterion Channel. They had like tons of extra features for this. There's like a full length commentary with Donna Deitch and like a few interviews with oh, wow. the cast. And yeah, it's like basically like owning a Blu-ray on the on the channel. There's like tons of extra stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say they do some really good special features. I did not watch the one for this, but I I do I do enjoy those quite a bit. The one thing that Donna Deitch said about why she wanted to make the movie and adapt this novel in the first place. And from what I could tell, she really deviated from the text, but she saw some like idea there that she wanted like represented on the screen was that she wanted to make a lesbian movie that doesn't end in suicide or a Mm -hmm. bisexual love triangle where like one of the women gets married to a man and that kind of ends their tryst. Yeah. And I, I think the movie does a good job of skirting around that without making it like a overt political point. But, you know, the, the threat of marriage ruining their dynamic is something that was definitely on the filmmaker's mind as she was, like, crafting the story, too. Yeah, I mean, the pressure on women, even, like, especially, like, young women to marry, like, we're so lucky and uh, we should not go back. <laughs> no one should get married at 23. It's terrible. Don't do it. But no, I, I love this movie. And also... um. I know I always have to mention things about the clothes in these movies, but uh, it kind of made me realize that in the summertime, I accidentally dress like a lesbian in, in the American Southwest in 1959. So what does that entail? Like, uh, Oh, the button downs and the cutoffs. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's my life in the summertime. I kept saying I dress like a dad, but now I know. It's actually a lesbian in the American Southwest in 1959. Her first like making a move moment where she's wearing the cutoffs behind the driver's seat of her car and like motions Vivian to come in with like a very suggestive wag of her fingers. Absolutely shameless. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Really forward. And I really like her like uh, current girlfriend um, giving sass the whole ride because she realizes she's being she's being replaced. It's very fun. Yes. We would be remiss if we did not point out that one of the one of the women who was there at the divorce ranch is Denise Crosby, uh, perhaps best known for playing Tasha Yar on Star Trek The Next Generation. Yes. I was waiting for someone in this movie to have been on Star Trek. 
I just knew it was coming out. Well, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I didn't know who it was going to be. Maybe it was Jeffrey Tambor who also shows up in the casino scenes. I read a book on my flight uh, that just came out recently uh, called The Queer Film Guide by Cal Turner. I don't know if y'all have seen this advertised, but like. No. It's been heavily promoted on the 42 film podcasts I subscribe to. But uh, <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty good list of like a hundred queer movies, and it's not just like all surface stuff. There was some picks in there like Funeral Parade of Roses, Born in Flames, Edward the uh, Second, Knife nice. and Heart, like stuff that we've all talked about before that I think goes a little bit beneath the surface. But it was a very good capsule review collection, and they all come with extra recommendations and little tidbits. Uh, I want to read the section from that because, you know, I read a book, so I have to share. But uh, I'm going to read Kyle's final paragraph on Desert Hearts. With beautifully dusty cinematography by Robert Elswit, Donna Deitch's Desert Hearts is a crucial point in American queer cinema, a film that takes its story about two women falling in love, despite their differences, seriously. It isn't just the polished nature of the movie. Deitch's directorial voice in her feature debut is confident and articulate, which conveys a lack of condescension to the material. It's a full interrogation of the characters within their environment. The casino floor is dimly lit, but it glows when Vivian and Kay are together. When they stand against the Nevada horizon, the mountains carving impressions in the sky, that's the world they're learning to share coming to life. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I recommend that book. It's been promoted on every other podcast in the world. It should sneak its way into the Swampflex podcast as well. It's called The Queer Film Guide by Kyle Turner. You know, we used to do a little the occasional swamp books. You know, we you did go back do and the occasional swamp books. Okay, then... fine. I just read "Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead," which was the 2019 Nobel Prize winner for uh, literature. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I looked it up. Turns out there's a movie version of it that was made in 2017 based on the original Polish edition. So uh, be ready to cover that um, at some point in the future. Swamp books. Swamp books. Swamp books. I, I also, I said beforehand that I figured I would shout out um, the band that I went and saw last night. Uh, the band is called Middle Satry. That is S-A-T-T-R-E. Um, I have a bit of a vested interest. I know them uh, socially. Two of the members of the band are neighbors of mine. Um, and sometime back, I... Uh, collaborated with the lead singer to produce their um, band bio for their press release. So they have their album coming out early next year, and they just had their second single release party last night. And those singles are Borderline Pornography and Stop Speaking. Uh, Stop Speaking is my personal favorite from the whole album, uh, which I have gotten, had the good fortune to hear when working with them on that band bio for their press kit. Uh, but yeah, Middle Satry, there are singles out now. You can check them out. Please, someone plug something else. Just keep the plugs going. Yeah, uh, listen to Plot is Optional. <laughs> I will talk about Smut. I'm just going to plug it again. Because why not? I'm, I'm currently reading, now that I finished Drive Your Plow, I'm reading The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff, which is her latest novel. Uh, I was a big fan of Fates and Furies, a novel that I read probably four years ago, and also her short story collection, uh, Florida. Both of those are some of the best books that I have read in the past five or ten years. Uh, the Vaster oh. Wilds is a little bit strange. Um, it's taking a little bit longer to get into it, but I am going to go ahead and give it a recommendation anyway. What books? I what also books? actually finally finished In Cold Blood. I did read a series book, and I loved it. So. Oh, will we be covering the movie soon, do you think? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say, I kind of really want to read the book of this, Desert Art. There's a great um, set of interviews. I, I think it's from a longer documentary about the author of the book on those Criterion um, bonus features. But uh, mm -hmm. there's a couple sections of her talking about, you know, what the book was supposed to be versus like what the movie does with her ideas. And uh, she she did sign off on Donna Deitch doing whatever she wanted with the source material. It wasn't like it was taken out of her hands. Yeah. But yeah, it's just interesting to hear her talk about the work and like how it was received and then how it was kind of mutated into this new project. I don't, I don't think they're that similar from what I gather, uh, besides like the basic premise. But um, 
that's the best kind of adaptation though is like something that yeah takes a core idea and turns it into its own thing yeah i mean i know we we all kind of have a thing where we just don't understand the point of adapting a book if it's the same can I plug the bookstores I went to in Minneapolis? Is that something? Yes, I do? please do. <laughs> yes, please. We're keeping the plug thing gone. Swamp Books. Swamp Books <laughs> recommends uh, both Uncle Hugo's science fiction bookstore in Minneapolis. That was just an entire like emporium of paperback sci-fi books. Very well organized. And I found some great stuff in there. And then also, mostly because of the name, I went to a place called The Book House in Dinkytown. I, oh uh, on foot crossed the Mississippi River on this beautiful stone footbridge that was like a mile long. And, uh, you know, it was just for pedestrians and bikes. And I got to this like beautiful college area of town. I watched Killers of the Flower Moon at this like university old school theater. And then I kept walking to Dinky Town and went to their book house, uh, which was very dense with. I don't want to say rare books because that that means something very specific. Like that means, you know, actual collectibles. These were just like very well curated books of interest. Uh, and I found a bunch of great stuff on film, including a um, an academic look at hardcore pornography and also including an academic look at German expressionism. So I left a very happy customer for my short time say, in Dickie Town. Your two halves. Yeah. <laughs> Mother, father, always you wrestle inside me. <laughs> I'm just imagining you having this like glorious, the leaves are turning New England adventure where you're like <laughs> hiking around. You're like Nadja getting her pen repaired. They were not very romantic trips on the bus and train. I'm not going to lie. Uh, especially that trip out to the Alamo was uh... okay. Th- these are the public transit instructions I took. I took a train from Minneapolis to St. Paul and then a bus from St. Paul to like a highway in the middle of nowhere. You know, like if you're like, take like the Greyhound and they just kind of dump you off in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, another bus will come and complete your journey yeah. later. Yeah. 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 So that's what these instructions told me to do. It's like to get off the bus in the middle of this highway and then call an Uber for the final 10 minute what? ride. Are you kidding me? That was the only way to get there via bus on the weekend. It was wild. Oh my God. Wow. Dinky town was a lot more romantic than the Alamo draft house experience. I think. Yeah, going out to the burbs is generally uh, not the most uh, romantic of times. I also just like saying Dinky Town a lot. I can't stop saying it. I was calling yeah. everyone who lives there Dinks uh, and kept saying that they live in Dinksville. Good. Endlessly amusing. I agree. I don't know how they don't call themselves Dinks, honestly. It's like there's a street here in Portland. Um, I think when you were here, Brandon, I told you the correct pronunciation of it is not, in fact, Couch Street, but it is Cooch Street. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I wasn't sure if I, I had told you that when, when you came to visit, but... I mean, we also have Peniston in New Orleans that everyone has to pronounce Penis Town, because that's just what it Why looks like. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Couch and Cooch, two of uh, Vivian's favorite things. Is this a very dignified way of discussing this film? Probably not. I don't know. No. It's very funny because, like, we've been really pushing our time limit lately. And this week, because this movie is very beautiful, but also it's very simple. Like, like the plot description is very simple. It's all just about the way that it connects with you emotionally. And that's not always something that's easy to describe, especially whenever we are all not as smart as we were three years ago. Uh, can I dial it back to Couch and Cooch for a second and uh, talk about the beautiful leather couch with embroidered horses oh my god on it. That, what was oh, that that was really something god. else so good at just this movie like the attention to detail for a movie that was made on this budget is just amazing just that they were able to like make it look like the 1950s but like not even like you know in that like stereotypical like ooh, cool 1950s way but like in a this was your grandma's house in this era sort of way on the commentary track donna deach also mentions that she loved shooting that couch because it had a squeak to it and uh she like made sure that they mic'd the like little couch squeaks every time um vivian and um and francis like shift their bodies on the thing you hear like the squeaks on the soundtrack and personally i did not notice that the first time i watched the movie but hearing her point that out was very indicative of how much attention to detail there were in like every little scene. It really was like an act of love and like a little 
outsider art project made by a few people out in the desert who weren't even sure that anyone would ever see it because they were making something without a distributor, just sort of on blind faith that someone would be interested in this story. And uh, it's held and up what do you know? remarkably well. Now it's on our Criterion channel. You can all watch it.